This is Maria McKenzie, and welcome to Provocative History, a program featuring historical fiction and fact that will make you laugh, cry, and think. Not long ago, I stumbled upon a topic that broke my heart. Halloween is coming up, and lots of kids will be wearing masks as part of their costumes. I remember those days, and I love disguising myself behind a mask. But what if you actually needed a mask to be seen in public or just by your family and friends? That's the dilemma several soldiers from World War I faced as they returned home from the trenches. World War I took the lives of more than 9 million soldiers, but many returned home blinded or with missing limbs. Then there were those who suffered the only injury in the UK that provided a full pension, facial disfigurement. Medicine had advanced by the time of the outbreak of World War I. Lives could be saved, but saving faces destroyed by trench warfare was a difficult undertaking. According to Olga Kazan in the Atlantic magazine, the iconic trenches of World War I were themselves an unforeseen enemy. The unceasing machine gun fire led to a fate that was at the time almost as bad as death. Western Front soldiers who popped their heads above their trenches, would come back down with a nose, jaw, or even an entire face missing. Now, the most advanced cosmetic surgery during this time was fixing a cleft lip. So doctors were faced with severe challenges. There were some crude successes of facial reconstruction, but the task of repairing a broken face beyond repair was left to the creation of a mask to cover the injuries. There was a woman sculptor named Anna Coleman Ladd that made some of the best masks. She, along with artist Francis Derwent Wood, helped hundreds of disfigured veterans readjust to society. Ladd would take plaster casts of the soldiers' faces and try to recreate an identical cheekbone or eye socket on the opposite side. Then using copper, she'd create a full or a partial mask. Then it would be painted to match the skin. The entire mask weighed only about half a pound, and it was either hung from a set of spectacles or tied with strings to the veterans' heads. In France alone, 3,000 soldiers would have required these masks, but Ladd only made 185. The masks weren't long-lasting, and they would fall apart after only a few years. But it's assumed that the men who wore them wore them to the grave, and none of those masks are in existence today. There are some excellent articles on the prosthetic mask of World War I, but the photographs included are not for the faint of heart, so if you should Google that subject, just be prepared. I'm going to shift gears now as I close today's episode. I'll be reading from my novel, Masquerade. The treacherous character character of Lavinia is extraordinarily beautiful and would never dream of covering her face with a mask. Yet she does masquerade in life as something she's not. If you listened to last week's episode, you were introduced to Lori, a slave, and Daniel, the wealthy son of a merchant. Escape is the first book of the Unchained Trilogy, and it tells of their love story and their eventual life in California. Lavinia is one of their children, and she is ashamed of her black mother. She also hates the straight-laced restrictions imposed on her by her parents. So she decides to run off to the theater and live her life as a masquerade. So please sit back and enjoy the prologue of Masquerade 
Book Two of the Unchained Trilogy. Spring, 1889. Now, not only will you have to speak with an accent, Vernon said, closing the script he'd just read with his new wife, you'll have to speak slowly. Beginning to feel groggy from the soothing sway of the locomotive, he yawned, then placed the script on the center table in front of him. You gotta keep in mind that the sailor has taught your character English, and it's a new language for her. Oh, Vernon, I realize that. Lavinia clutched her husband's arm. They sat on a green velvet love seat in his private rail car. Sometimes you talk to me like I'm a child. Vernon chuckled. Sometimes I forget you're old but beyond your years. I'm seventeen, hardly a child. Well, to an old man like me. Oh, Vernon, you're not that old. Her words were sweet, Vernon thought. But at 54, he was old and probably losing his mind. Since he'd married Lavinia only days earlier, not a moment had passed when he hadn't questioned himself about what he'd done. She was young, beautiful, and determined, and he was in love with her. Vernon Hargraves, owner of New York City's premier theater company, the Hargraves Players, had never considered himself a marrying man, but that had all changed once he'd set eyes on Lavinia Taylor. Who would have thought that Vernon's desire to buy land in California would instead result in his gaining a wife? Vernon? Lavinia arrested his thoughts. What should I wear in the production? He looked into his young wife's eager face one of unearthly beauty, with high cheekbones, sensual lips, and cat-like green eyes that sparked wildly with excitement. Vernon smiled, patting her hand. My seamstress will fix you up with some clothes that are island-like. Island-like? Yeah, sarongs and such. Lavinia's emerald eyes widened. S-sarongs? Vernon's rotund middle jiggled as he laughed. They're long pieces of fabric that you wrap around the waist. Lavinia's mouth opened in wonder. Then she giggled. That's scandalous. What about the rest of me? You'll be well covered, he squeezed her hand. Your costumes will only be suggestive of the South Pacific. And your hair, he gazed at the thick black tresses piled high. You'll wear it down with your exotic look and your mystique. The starring role in Hidden Splendor is just right for your debut. My debut, Lavinia exclaimed. Oh, I can't wait. Vernon, you're just too good to me. Do you think people will love me? Of course. Vernon's eyes began to grow heavy, and he leaned his head back, but none as much as I do. In moments, Vernon was asleep. His large belly rose and fell, and his rasping snores kept time with the rhythmic chugging of the locomotive. Using a lace-edged handkerchief, Lavinia patted dust from her brow. The heat from the train ride and its bitter-smelling ash didn't faze her. She was too busy dreaming about her future plans. Lavinia lusted for the role of the island girl and wanted more than anything to reveal her talent to the world. Mrs. Hargraves... One of Vernon's servants, an Irish girl, in prim and proper black attire, approached Lavinia and bowed slightly. Dinner will be served in thirty minutes. Lavinia suppressed a giggle. This maid suspected nothing. 
the thrill of a white servant kowtowing to her as if she were a rich and powerful white person was only too exhilarating. She raised her head in a masquerade of white superiority. Very well, then. Thank you. The maid returned to the car's dining room, leaving Lavinia alone with Vernon once more. Soon she'd need to wake her husband for the evening meal. But that slipped her mind. Instead, Lavinia's thoughts gravitated back to Hidden Splendor, not the play itself, but the title, which so brilliantly reflected her circumstances. She'd successfully escaped from California and was now journeying to New York in search of the hidden splendor that awaited her. Gazing at Vernon, she took notice of his black suit. He wore the color of mourning, which to Lavinia was rather symbolic. It represented the death of her old life. Lavinia was attired in purple. She remembered her mother saying that purple was the color of royalty. And now Lavinia felt resurrected as a queen. The locomotive swayed as it went around a curve. Vernon's balding head lolled to the side. He snorted loudly as drool oozed from the corner of his mouth. Removing her eyes from him, Lavinia gazed at the car's elegant furnishings, varnished mahogany wall paneling, and the heavy red draperies trimmed in gold brocade. Then she peered from the window at the mountainous terrain and barren landscape under a setting sun of orange, pink, and gold. Good riddance, California, Lavinia said to herself. So what if her father was a powerful white man because of his land and money? Her mother was nothing but a lowly ex-slave, and because of that, Lavinia's life had nearly been ruined. Even though she looked white, Lavinia would never be thought of as anything more than Negro, and she was too pretty and too smart to stand for that. She wouldn't miss her home, and she certainly wouldn't miss her parents. They'd never understood her nor her dream of becoming an actress. And Lavinia would never forget the hurtful things they'd said to her before she'd run off with Vernon. Being an actress is barely one step above being a prostitute, Mother had said. Lavinia's lip twitched at the thought of her mother's blackness, blackness Lavinia had despised and disowned. And Father had called Vernon filth. That was before he told Lavinia that the stage was right where she belonged because she'd acted like a whore. Running after that man like a common strumpet, he'd said, then selling yourself to him in a loveless marriage. You disgust me. Lavinia raised her chin, holding back the burn of tears inflicted by those scathing remarks. How dare they? Married in North Carolina in some kind of Quaker ritual, her parents' marriage wasn't even legally binding. But, Lavinia thought smugly, hers was. Vernon had appeared in California as if by magic to rescue her. Now, not only would he make her an actress and star, he'd give her a brand new life in New York as white. And that concludes the prologue of Masquerade, book two of the Unchained Trilogy. Thank you so much for listening, and please be sure to visit my website, www.mariamckenziewrites.com. I would love to hear from you. So please drop me a line anytime. Thank you for visiting with me and thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Maria McKenzie at Provocative History.